Alright, welcome to another edition of the Broadcast Journal. We're coming to you from Yankee Stadium, and the guest is, most people say he is the voice of the Yes Network. He does, um, he's a pre, he is the co-host of the Michael K Show. He's also the television voice of the New York Yankees. He also has his own show called Stutter Stage, also on the Yes Network. It is Michael K. How are you doing, Michael K? Good, Kofi. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So, let's, you know, give a brief some not synopsis of uh, the game that just happened today between the Yankees and Yankees. How do you assess that game? No, well, I mean the the Rays just aren't on the Yankees level. I think they know that. Um, Severino is one of the best pitchers in baseball, and he didn't even have great stuff today. He didn't have great command, and he was just able to overpower them. Uh, he's that good, and the Yankees are just better than the Rays. So games like these, you have to take care of. You have to beat teams like this, and then you have to play to maybe a 500 level when. Uh, uh, when you're playing a really good team. So if you beat up on the bad teams, you're going to have a good record. Okay, very good. Uh, so let's talk about uh, st- your start of your career. Most broadcasters, they obviously start their career in college. You went to a, a, a steam college in Fordham. Talk about your days at Fordham and how that helped you in terms of your um, career. Well, it helped a great deal. I mean, that was one of the reasons I went to Fordham. They have a great student radio station, WFUV. So when I was a freshman, I joined, worked my way up, became the sports director. And I also, at the same time, uh, became the sports editor of the school newspaper, and uh, I just wanted to keep my options open because back at uh, at Fordham when I first got there, I had a really really thick New York Bronx accent, so it would have been hard for me to get a job in the broadcasting industry. But I, I learned the ins and outs of radio working at WFUV. But when I got out of college, uh, uh, I ended up being a, in, a clerk first and then an intern uh, for the New York Post, and I worked my way up to being the Yankee beat writer and. While I was covering the Yankees for five years, first to the Post and then the News, just traveling around with the Yankees, I kind of lost a New York accent. I still have it a bit, uh, and that kind of opened up the broadcasting end for me. Now, I listen to your radio show often, and you always mention the fact that Billy Martin was a big part of where you got in terms of your um, writing career. Talk about that relationship. Well, it was weird. Um, you know, Billy had been here four previous times, uh, and that was when I was in school. So by the time I got to the Yankee beat, that was when he was starting his fifth um, his fifth time as Yankee manager, and I think he just wanted to be judged from that point on, not by what he did in the past. And uh, all the other writers had been around a long time, so they looked at him in a certain way, and I, I certainly can't uh, judge them badly for that because you know his past wasn't great, but with me he was tremendous, and uh, he gave me stories that nobody else had uh, that propelled my career. Certainly brought a lot of spotlight on me. The New York Post played it up big, all these big stories they put on the front page. So all of a sudden, the Post was the place to go for Yankee stories, and it was because of Billy Martin, because he trusted me, and I, I told him I'd give him a fair shake, and he was great with me, he really was. So how, how, tough, how tough was it when you heard the news of his uh, passing? It was difficult. I remember I was, um, I think I was over at my sister's house, and I got a call. I was at the Daily News then, and um, they said that Billy Martin had died. And sadly, as much as I like Billy... Uh, he obviously had his demons, and he just didn't seem like a guy who was going to die in his sleep. And uh, that's certainly the way it happened. You know, coming home on Christmas Eve and getting, I think he was about 100 yards from home, if that far. And then he got into an accident with a ditch near his house and passed away. It was it was emotional, it was tough, and uh, I miss him. I mean, I, I really believe he would have been Yankee manager a couple more times. Oh, really? Oh yeah, he and he and George Steinbrenner had a great relationship. Billy loved being the Yankee manager, and you know when he sh- got rid of the demons for a short period of time, there, there really was no better manager. He was so far ahead of the game, and 
and George Steinberg to realize the value that he had, bringing attention to the Yankees and motivating a team. So I definitely knew he had told me right before he died, like two weeks before he died, that he was coming back um, if they fired Bucky Dent at the start of the season or near the start of the season. So there was definitely going to be a Billy Six. So why not a Billy Seven? <laughs> now I also read that you also had you also in your newspaper time you also covered the Nets. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about those couple of years that you worked with. Uh, yeah, the Nets. I love I love basketball. Uh, I don't love it as much as baseball, but I certainly love basketball. And that was my first beat. Well, first thing I did at the Post after I was a clerk was uh, I ended up covering college basketball. And then from college basketball, they moved me on to the net beat, and that was when they were in Jersey and they played in the Meadowlands. And they were a pretty good team. Daryl Dawkins, Otis Birdsong, Orlando Woolridge. Uh, they, they were good. Dave Wall was the coach. Uh, Michael Ray Richardson was there. Um, it was a fun, up-tempo offense, very, very good. And then Richardson uh, had problems with drugs, and uh, I think the team had won 10 of 11 games before he went off the deep end. But... Um, uh, the next um, after that last year with the Nets, the Yankee job opened up and they moved me to that. But I really enjoyed covering basketball. I like the NBA a lot. Now you got your big break in TV with MSG. You got a chance to do some Yankee stuff as well as the Knicks. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. How that opportunity came about. Well, I you know once I became a writer, I didn't know if I was ever going to be you know the Yankee broadcaster, which was my dream since I was nine. So when MSG got the rights, I knew some people at MSG um, from when I was younger. And I pitched the idea of tomorrow's news today. So I was at the Daily News at the time, and they actually allowed me to still write for the news and do this. And I would go into the clubhouse after a game, as if I was writing a story, getting quotes from players. And I would come out on the post-game show, and I would give those quotes right then. And the the pitch to MSG was, TV is a medium of immediacy. Why are we chasing the tail of the the newspapers? We should be ahead of the newspapers because we could give the information right away. And they, they, they thought it was a good idea, and I did it. And I did that for a couple of years. Uh, and then the, um, the job opened up with John Sterling on radio, and I ended up getting that. And I stayed at MSG and did both of those. And then the, uh, the Yes Network began. So talk about uh, the, uh, covering the Knicks uh, during that time period. Uh, that was a great time. I mean, when I was covering the Knicks, doing the pre- and post-game with Al Troutwick for MSG, they were awesome. I mean, that was, that was the Pat Riley years and then uh, the Jeff Van Gundy years. And the garden was the place to be. So a young guy like you or younger people that might be listening, the garden's full now all the time, but it's not the place to be. This was like the center of the universe. Every big star was there. Every game had, a, had an electricity to it. Every game meant something. So one of the greatest players of all time on a game-by-game basis and Patrick, Patrick Ewing, it was great. It was a lot of fun. They didn't win championships because they had Jordan in the way. And when they did get to a championship, um, they, they just weren't able to close it out, but that was a great team. And it, you know, the way the Knicks have played for the last 20 years, it makes you miss it. It really does. Now, talk about your relationship with Al Trawick. I know, some, I know sometimes at radio stations you talk about how close you are. Uh, how did he help you in terms of your career? He was just, just watching him work and how quick he was on his feet. Nothing ever flustered him, nothing ever made him nervous. Uh, he was an extraordinary writer. Uh, and wrote teases and, and a bit of advice he gave me that I carry to this day he said never read anything on the air that you don't write yourself or at least tweet for your own voice he said just don't take a piece of copy and read it because that's your voice and I'm going to think you read it and uh, I, I always do that and I, I always hear Al telling me that but just how smooth he was I've never worked with somebody who was more built for TV great voice 
such a quick mind, never got flustered. You could talk in his ear in the IFB, never, ever lost his step. He was amazing. He's still amazing doing the Knicks and the Rangers, but uh, I think I was with him for 12 years at the MSG Network, and every year was unbelievable. He was just, he was just that good. Now talk about the, the obviously the big break that you got. Uh, How did you get the opportunity to become uh, the number two radio voice behind John Sterling? Well, Joe Angel was working with John. They didn't get along, uh, and I was covering the Yankees uh, for the Daily News and then doing the stuff on MSG, and um, Joe Angel just quit. Just quit. Uh, I think that was after the 91 season, and I got a call from somebody at ABC and said, would you like to be considered for the job? And I said, yeah, I'd love to be considered for the job. So there were hundreds and maybe thousands of applicants for the job, and I had to do tryout tapes and stuff because they were concerned about me doing play-by-play. And um, somehow I got it. I still to this day don't know how I got it. But I got it, and that started 10 years working with John Sterling. So that that was the first real big broadcasting break on a you know on a, on a serious level because MSG was obviously the first break because people that were at ABC could see that I was on the air and was able to articulate my thoughts. But um, ABC. When they hired me to do the Yankees, that was pretty unbelievable. Did you have any um, play-by-play experience in baseball before that? Just, just in college. And if you heard, I've still got some tapes of it. If you heard, heard me doing it, you wouldn't get a job off those tapes. <laughs> it was, it was all. You hear my voice, you wouldn't even think it was me. And you're too young for this. But if, if you remember, Welcome Back, Cotter, an old-time TV show in the '70s, I sounded like Vinnie Barbarino. I mean, a real thick accent. And, you wouldn't think if you heard that tape right now, you would not think it was me. But that was the experience that I had doing play-by-play for my college radio station. Let's talk about how um, those early years. Obviously, the Yankees weren't as good as they became. So talk about those first couple of years that you did. Uh... I was so lucky because the the first year was '92, and that was Buck Showalter's first year, and uh, Buck Showalter and Gene Michael started to turn it all around. So. They got progressively better every single year, 92, 93, and then 94, um, they they were outstanding. And the, then the strike hit, and they had the, the best record in the American League at the time. Then 95, they started off slowly, but they had that great run to get the wild card and that great series against Seattle. So, you know, I look at teams and broadcasters that are consistently bad every single year. And I'm so lucky because even though the Yankees had losing records in 92 and 93, they were competitive and you could see that they were moving forward and doing the right thing. So since 94, I have never, ever broadcasted a team that was under 500. So I'm pretty fortunate, but that I guess that goes along with being involved with the Yankees. That's that's who they are. What did you enjoy most about that 10-year run you and Sterling had on the radio? Well, we had such a great time, and uh, what I remember the most was how special it was when they made the postseason because there was a real drought there. They hadn't made the postseason since 1981, and fans were not spoiled. Fans were starved. So I, I just remember the night that they played game one of the 95 wildcard series against the, uh, the Mariners and how electric the old stadium was and how Mattingly came out before the game and... and did his runs in right field and the stadium was shaking and then the 96 World Series it was all very new and the fans appreciated it and the players loved it and then they went off on that run and I think like after 2001 though everybody became a little bit spoiled where they expected it every single year so the last game I ever did with John was the game 7 of 2001 World Series and 
it was a classic World Series that the Yankees ended up losing, a classic seventh game. But that that's the thing that sticks out, how exciting it was. And John and I had a great rapport, and we had a great time on the air. And, you know, John once told me right at the beginning when I started, you, know, you should always want the team to win because when you give people good news, they end up liking you more than they would if you gave them bad news. So when a team's winning, all you're doing is giving them good news. So about how you got your current gig. Obviously, uh, with the Yes Network, it started because the Yankees had issues with MSG. So talk about how the formation of the Yes Network happened in terms of how you got your job. Well, I mean, it wasn't so much that they had issues with MSG. The contract was up, and um, they looked at, you know, the, the opportunity was pitched to George Steinberg about starting his own network, and if any one team could do it, it would be the Yankees and build the network around the Yankees. Uh, and one of the first hires that he had was John Filippelli. I had never met John ever in my life. And I was sitting in the booth doing a game with John Sterling, and this was in toward the end of September of, of 2001. And John Filippelli came into the booth, and I, at that point, for some reason that year, I had lost a lot of weight. I tried to lose weight, and I was on a diet, and I lost like 50 pounds. And this guy, John Filippelli, walks in and says, you know what, you look better on TV without the weight. You should keep it off. I said, okay, thanks. And then he walked out of the booth. I had no idea. But he had it in his mind. He wanted to hire me to be the main play-by-play guy. So that's that's how it all began. I, I, I guess I lost weight at the right time. <laughs> so talk about the difference between doing uh, play-by-play on radio in terms of TV and how you made that adjustment in your early years doing uh, the games on Yes. There's a big difference. There really is. I've always believed that the play-by-play guy on radio is the star. The play-by-play guy on TV is not the star, the analyst of the star. So uh, you have to set them up in TV. And the biggest adjustment for me was not talking as much as you talk on the radio because you have to describe everything on the radio if you're doing it the right way, so you're talking a lot. And on TV, you've got the pictures, you know, and just let it breathe. And I think that took a couple of years for me to get totally comfortable, but it's now 17 years, so I hope I'm comfortable now. <laughs> So let's talk about some of your favorite uh, memories, uh, moments since you've been able to do the games on TV. Uh, I mean, just how everybody at the Yes Network is so great. And I know this sounds like a cliche, but it, it really is like a family. Everybody that works there likes each other. There's no backstabbing. There's anything like nothing like that. And, you know, Flip, John Filippelli is a great boss. He, he's amazing. Gives you feedback, both positive and negative. A lot of bosses, the only time you hear from them is when it's negative. But John will call you after a game and tell you, you know, that was great, that was a great call in the fourth inning. You know, that, that's what stands out. It, it's 17 years that have absolutely flown by. You know, 2009 was fun. And, and just being able to, the things that stand out in my mind is to be able to chronicle moments that you're so fortunate to be a part of. You know, closing the old Yankee Stadium in 2008 and, uh, you know, leading up to that. And Derek Jeter's 3,000th hit, um, A-Rod's 600th home run, um, Obviously, Mariano retiring, Jeter retiring, things like that. The 2009 World Series, although obviously we don't get to do the series, but chronicling that team and doing the pre- and post-game shows. uh, Every single year has been just an unbelievable ride because the Yankees really give you something all the time. Now, moving on to the other stuff that you do on the Yes Network, the center stage. Uh, So how did that idea come about? Well, the way Flip tells me... uh, after he got the job at Yes, he wrote down things on a napkin. He was in a restaurant and just had ideas come to him. And one of the things was an interview show, one-on-one interview show. And I think he had other people in mind to do uh, 
the interviewing. It wasn't like when it was on that napkin. It wasn't center stage with Michael K. I think he had a lot of other people that that he thought of, and I kind of he kind of went through some of those people, and I don't think it worked out. And then he came to me um, and said, you know, you do good interviews, and when you interview people on the radio, so and when you're in the clubhouse, let's let's do this show. And I I love that show because. Uh, I just think that one of the things I do best is interview people. I just have a natural curiosity about what people do for a living and why they do it and how they got to where they are. And that's what that show's about. And I think that people like being on the show as well because most TV interviews, they're so short, they're cut up. This is an hour, so you could really tell your story and it's not edited to the point where it's not even approximating what you said. So that's how Center Stage came about. So it's uh, been 17 years of it. So... Is, has there ever been an interview you said, oh, man, you, you're glad you got that interview, and is there one person that you wanted to interview, but you just haven't been able to get that person? Well, my favorite interview of all, I think we've done over, like, 230 of them, probably Larry David. Uh, we've actually become friends since that show, the creator of Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. That was fun. That was great. Um, the guys I've wanted and we've never been able to get, I wanted to do uh, Bruce Springsteen, and I wanted to do Billy Joel. Never been able to nail them down. I wanted to do some political figures. I wanted to do Bill Clinton. I wanted to do both George Bushes, but uh, it never happened. Now I wouldn't mind adding Barack Obama to that because I just, I just would like to talk about what it's like to be the, the leader of the free world. So that's the curiosity and what's it like behind closed doors. We know what it's like outside those doors, but what's it like when you have to make those decisions? So those are some of the people that I have not been. I'd love to get Michael Jordan too. <laughs> So talk about your radio show. So how did that come about, Michael K. Show? Um, it, it came about the same time as the Yes Network, ironically enough. And uh, the head of ESPN Radio asked me if I would like to do a radio show. And um, it started it started at 12 noon, a couple of hour show. Uh, then it went to 10 o'clock, which I hated because at that time I didn't like to wake up early. Now I have two kids, so I'm always up early. So that was 10 to 1. Uh, and then, like, I, may, I guess maybe five years in, six years in, they moved me to the afternoon drive with Don, and uh, then Peter joined after that. So that's been 17 years of that as well, and it's been fun. It really is. It's, it, it's hard to do both full-time jobs, you know, because on a game day, you know, I, I probably get to the radio station at 1.30 or here, here at the stadium if they're doing a game. I have to get here at 1.30 prep for the show. The show goes from 3 to 7, but I leave at 6.30 so I can come up here and tape things. So I leave my house probably at 12.30. I get to my house at noon, at midnight after the game is over. I'm not complaining, but you know now that you have young kids and I wasn't married when it all started, it does take you away from your family, but you know the ability to do these two jobs and earn a living like that gives the family things that they wouldn't have either, so it's a little bit of a trade-off. Now, I interviewed Don uh, last year, and he talked about how he was, uh, in terms of when the show was starting, he was told different things that he would get a chance to be a co-host, but then he was actually an update guy. So he said that you were real instrumental in helping him get to a point where you guys could be like equal ground in terms of co-hosts. Well, it was so weird because like when I first did the show, you know, I'm doing the show on the road because I'm doing the Yankees, and there's always a fear, at least 17 years ago when the technology wasn't as good, is that the line would drop. So if I'm the only line of defense and the line drops, then it's dead air. So they say, all right, we're going to have this guy Don LaGreca back in the studio, and you could use him whenever you want. So for the first two shows, I never spoke to him. I just thought he was there as a safety net. And then they said, you know, you could actually bring him in and talk with him. 
and it's I mean it's so much easier to do a show with two or three people and I think it's better for the listener rather than hear one person drone on and on and on this way it's a conversation that the listener is a part of and you know, once I started, you know, bringing Don into the show, it was a natural. The two of us just fit together, and uh, you know, he probably talks more than me on the radio. So, uh, yeah, he's he's very important to what that show is. And I've said it before: if he left to do something on his own volition, well, then God bless him. But if for some reason I ever got rid of him, then I would just leave the show because, you know, the show is the two of us, and and now Peter. And what do you and what do you contribute? Uh, your shows obviously got more popular since it's beyond the Yes Network. Even Don told me that. Do you mm-hmm. think that's been the reason why your shows? Been I just up? think that over time, I mean, changing the ratings in radio, I w- was once told, is like turning around a cruise ship. It takes forever, and you know we're going up against a legendary figure, and Mike Francesa who's been doing it for thirty years, and uh, they're on a stronger station. In fact, they're on two stations. We're on one. Um, and I just think over time it got more popular because our show, ha- I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not an egomaniac, but I think our show is better than Francesca's. And I think that people will try it out, they end up staying. But I think uh, a big seismic change was when they started simulcasting us. Because then people got a chance to be in on the party and see what the party looks like rather than just hear it. So somebody that might have seen it at home, all of a sudden they get in the car and they turn it on and that, that could be somebody who's giving you a rating. So... Uh, if you if you look at our ratings on TV, what we do on radio, the amount of people that listen on the ESPN app and people that download the show, way more people consume us than consume the guy who supposedly is in front of us, but that's not the way radio ratings are. So in, just in terms of radio, uh, of late, he just he, he beats us by a little bit. So I just want to uh, ask a couple more questions. Uh, one would be... Uh, who would you say is your favorite Yankee that you were able to cover all the way from your writing days to now? Well, probably my favorite my favorite Yankee growing up was Bobby Mercer. So getting a chance to work with him at Yes, that's a thrill. But in terms of, like, as a writer, it would have to be Don Mattingly. Just the ultimate gentleman. He's everything that you would want a, a hero to be. And uh, he was a, a, a tremendous amount of help for me when I was a writer, too, because... He trusted me, uh, always had time for me, and then when young players got called up, you know, a guy like Mattingly, who's the captain, would pull them aside and he would, you know, the writers would be in the clubhouse and he would point at me and goes, okay, that guy you can trust. So coming out of Mattingly, that's that's gold, that's platinum, so that meant the world. So yeah, he's, he's probably the favorite guy to cover. And then my last question, I always ask my um, guest this, when it's all said and done, how would you like to remember it? Kid from the Bronx, living out the dream since I was nine years old. Grew up maybe 10, 15 minutes away from here, and all I wanted to be was the Yankee announcer. And I just, uh, I would like people to say, live the dream, never big time people. Uh, always, always remembered where he came from and what he was. And uh, there's a lot of nasty people in this business and industry and backstabbers. And I, I never did that. I would never do that. And I always want, I want I treat people the way I would want people to treat me and I, I if, if people say that about me I'll be pretty happy alright thanks to my guest Michael K hope you enjoyed this edition of the Broadcast Journal thanks man you got it didn't take